You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Mickey. Hey, Bob. What is that you're crinkling in front of the Can't camera, you? Mickey? Can't you, uh, don't you, doesn't this sensuous sound send a tingle up your brain, Bob? Can't say that that's the reaction I'm we having. I'm afraid you're going to have to elaborate, especially for our we got, uh, audio we, audience. We we have to get out of this uh, political podcast business and into the ASMR business, Bob, which is a oh. lucrative form of YouTubing where we make sensuous sounds that send a tingle up people's scalp and cause a brain orgasm. And those people are making money like bandits. They also whisper in sensuous tones, uh, but uh, and uh, and like uh, I'm sold. Do something. They do something with spaghetti. I don't know what it is. But I'm sold. The, when do we start? So this is crink, like the crinkling is yeah. the, is the thing. Yeah, this has been going on for a while. I first heard about this a couple of years ago. Um, it's kind of like being in a David Lynch movie, I guess. Like you know, like a Racerhead or something, where you you, you get this fine green version of these everyday sounds. I guess that's right, yeah. and that would work. I, I I've noticed that I live in a in a high in an area where a lot of people drive very expensive exotic cars, and most of them sound horrible. But some of them really send a tingle up my spine. What can I say? They're delicious. The sounds are delicious. This is a side of you I don't think we'd seen before, Mickey. And I, I'm not I, sure I how think, often we want to see it. To be honest, yeah, I don't think I don't think we want to see it again. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Mercedes, the Mercedes V8 makes a great sound. That's all I can say. But hey, Mickey, don't act like our current business model isn't working. I mean, we're getting up there in the vicinity of 400 uh, patrons uh, at the at the. That's great. At Patreon.com/slash/Parrot Room. We're getting so successful that instead of advertising our success, we'll have to disguise it so people don't get envious. Yeah, well, I think uh, this week your bandwidth uh, is sufficiently bad that they will not be under the impression that we just have <laughs> oodles of money lying around because, you know, if we did, we'd buy you a modem or something. Uh, people yeah. watching on we, video may, may note that you're moving in fits and starts. I think I'm going to be able to hear what you're saying. Uh, people will know if I can't, I guess. Okay, well, we're not making that much money. That's for sure. That is for sure. You can say that again. Um, but every every little bit helps. In these perilous times. Absolutely. If you want to keep quality journalism coming, then uh, I guess give money to somebody other than us. But if you want us, <laughs> give us money. Um, so what's your take on uh, things in the world? Well, in the campaign, uh, my impression is the left was really worried that the riot issue was hurting them. Uh, and they were acting a little panicked. Mm-hmm. And the polls have showed a, 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 a you know a steady steady uh, decrease in Biden's edge in battleground states, and then a whole slew of polls came in that seemed to affirm that Biden was still in pretty good shape. Like the CNN poll showing him eight points, you know, the average was seven or eight points ahead nationally. Yeah. Uh, but just today there were so th- then they sort of said, well, maybe these. All of a sudden, the frenzy about defending Biden on the riots uh, abated. Uh, but today, there were two bad polls for him again. There was one showing him close in Pennsylvania and one showing him behind in Florida. And that's a big deal. So 
my, I think the mini panic has started to set in again. And uh, yeah, my, my rough rule of thumb is what my friend John Ellis says, which is add two points to Trump. There's a two point silent edge to Trump. So Biden's three ahead in battleground states, uh, minus the two points. He's one ahead. Now that's, that's pretty, pretty scary for him. The, the two points is due to the Bradley effect where people are kind of afraid to admit to pollsters that they're supporting Trump. Is that where the two points? I think points that's come? mostly it. Yes. Yes. Because on that front, uh, I had an alarming conversation, alarming for a Biden supporter with somebody, uh, you, you would know, you may know him. You certainly know of him. He's like a DC think tanker. And he was saying he lives so in. You're not naming. You're not I, naming him. I, no, it was not. It was a private conversation. I'm not okay. authorized to name this person. But okay. it was uh he lives in suburban DC in Virginia, which is a little more conservative on balance than the Maryland part of suburban DC. But in any event, he said he's worried that his neighbors seem freaked out about the Black Lives Matter Antifa thing that Trump is trying to freak people out with. Right. And he worries that basically the upshot is that the Bradley effect will be bigger than people realize. These are people who, who probably precisely because, uh, their reservations about Biden are ultimately kind of race related, right? It's like right. these, these, you know, BLM, black protesters, whatever, they would be, uh, particularly reluctant to admit if they were swinging to Trump, this scared me. This worried me that that that, well, that the Bradley effect could be three, four points. You know, right? It, 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 I think the race thing makes it bigger, and also just as we get closer to the election and people get more hysterical about shaming their Trump supporter friends, that by itself would magnify the Bradley effect hmm. because you just don't want. You, at some point, you just don't want to tell people who you're going to vote for. And he also don't want to pick up the phone. So, you know, it's not just, it's not just lying to pollsters. It's not even responding to pollsters. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I, of course, I always have bad vibes. I'm, I'm just pessimistic, but I gotta say, I do have some of them. And I, and you know, uh, Biden is, is said to have responded effectively to the law and order issue. I personally don't think he's done a bang up job so far what did you think i mean the he gave the pittsburgh speech where he said looting isn't protest or whatever yeah. um and, uh, and apparently uh, they're putting that into a ton and into ads and spending oodles on getting the the ad out well that that does show how panicked they are about it um i i think the gold standard is clinton's sister soldier moment yep. and or uh and uh the difference and he he named a specific person who was part of his coalition and said, you stop that. You're bad, which mm -hmm. Biden hasn't done. He hasn't said, you BLM, stop that. And, and he also did it in front of Jesse Jackson. OK, so it took real balls and just blanket condemning violence, I don't think, does the job nearly as well and biden biden has a lot of targets for sister soldier he could he could attack this dc monuments commission that called for tearing down or de or or recontextualizing the washington monument but he could say he could say look cram it we're not tearing down the washington monument on my watch okay i like the well, washington nobody's monument. talking we're about tearing it. down the washington monument there, it, said, it said it said demolish or recontextualize it was 
They did the part one option was was tearing down these monuments. So yes, he, he I could think, he could distort it into something he could easily attack. I think he's had several opportunities. I, I think when NPR ran the interview with the author of that pro looting book in defense of looting or whatever ever the there book is go. called, that was a great opportunity to actually sound indignant. You know, and, and, right. and he'd be denouncing NPR. That that's that's right. a sister soldier moment. Right. Um, or he- the or or when I don't know, did you see this video where people on the right tried to make a a big thing of it like as if it was typical. It, it wasn't, but it was some speaker at at a protest in DC that I guess carried the BLM imprimatur and the guy was saying it's time to start killing cops. Well, that you could jump on. I, I think the right. NPR thing was the best opportunity because it was so widely publicized. Right, right. That was a good. That's a good one. The other, my other candidates were the American Psychiatric Association saying the source of all our ills is capitalism and systemic racism, and uh, it sounded completely insane for as if as if you know there weren't other psychological problems. And this is a licensing organization, so Biden could go to town on them. And he could even attack Governor Cuomo for saying Trump is going to need an army of bodyguards if he comes to New York, if he doesn't want to get hurt. He could say that's not the kind of rhetoric we want. Sorry. Yeah, but most of those New York. But most of the most of the the opportunities you're citing are not directly related to the law and order issue. I, I do think that's the thing to hit like. Yours is better if he, yours is better. I think yours is better. But the others are, I mean, he could, couldn't he do more than one? I mean. Yeah, he could do more than one. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to do, do too many, but, uh, but one effective one would go a long way. I mean, the trouble with the Pittsburgh speech is it had a kind of a to be sure quality, kind of. Don't get me wrong. I'm not in favor of looting. I mean, that that's I just don't think that's strong enough. Also, yeah, he's coming after Trump raised the issue and said it's too late, Joe Biden. You know, that that only reinforced the idea that he was kind of responding defensively as opposed to being genuinely indignant. Right. Right. And, and also, if you look at Kamala Harris's statements, she also has a pro forma condemnation of violence at the end. But in the first you know that that's after five minutes of 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 demagoguery about how uh, uh, Mr. Blake was uh, in front of his children. Uh, you know, and she repeated it three times. Uh, well, Mr. Blake doesn't seem to have been a prince, so it's uh, and he had a knife in the car at least. So it's uh, it, it was it was distortion of facts. And then before she was sort of rooting for the Portland rioters and. People have contributed to the, in in their campaigns have contributed to bailing out the Portland writers. They went for two or three weeks at least, where there was nothing wrong in Portland. Go, these riots are going to continue. These protests are going to continue. So they have they have a, a debt to make up. They can't just make it up with one speech. Yeah, she said this thing on, uh, I guess uh, Steve Colbert maybe. That I heard on the Bannon podcast. And first of all, if you hear it on the Bannon podcast, it's a pretty safe bet that she shouldn't have said it, right? Like if they're trying <laughs> to amplify it. What she, and it does seem to me ill-advised. What she said was, um, she was saying these protests are going to, you know, they're, they're going to go on until the election and going to go on after the election. What she said was, uh, they're not going to let up before the election. They're not going to let up after the election and they shouldn't let up. 
Now, in context, right. she means the fight for racial justice should go on until there's racial justice. Fine. But, you know, the, taken in isolation, that is not what she a message that she needs voters to hear. I mean, right. I really, you know, data. On this, yeah, go ahead. No, you go. go. Well, I, I think part of her problem is um, she's so self-conscious about the Kamala, the cop charge from the left. I think she totally she has the left in mind when she talks. This is no time to have the left in mind when you right. talk. She, and she was she was even wrong in the Democratic primary when she was too conscious of the left. So she's certainly wrong in the general election. It also contradicts. It happens to contradict the implicit way that Biden might turn the rise to his advantage, which is everybody knows that when he's president, the riots are going to calm down. Uh, so they'll just press the change button. They'll, they'll say, okay, we're, everything's going crazy. Uh, I'm going to press, we're going to press change and maybe things will calm down. Uh, so by saying they're going to go on and on and on, she's sort of, uh, she's sort of, uh, contradicting. Well, I'm um, saying they should go on. I mean, that, that's just, you know, it, I went, went, when Biden chose her, I had this sinking feeling that he shouldn't, should have chosen Susan Rice. And one thing about Susan Rice is, I mean, she's, uh, she's in some ways maybe not a dream, uh, candidate. She's not, you know, smooth, doesn't have a lot of sizzle. But because of her experience as a diplomat, she speaks carefully. And, uh, that would have come in handy in this case, because I don't think she would have said this. I think in retrospect, she would have been better. Yeah. She doesn't, she has a much calmer, uh, more authoritative demeanor. Kamala seems like a valley girl who's been given a lot of power. Mm. She, I mean, she giggles, you know. Uh-huh. Um, the, the, I expect coverage of the riots to calm down because the press is on Biden's side and they've come to realize, uh, the more we cover them, the worse Biden does. I mean, the original line was nothing wrong with the riots. Uh, the second line was, the riots are horrible, but they're Trump's fault. And the new line, the third line is, riots, what's riot? I'm eating a burrito in the park. I'm perfectly fine. I walked through New York. Nobody assaulted me. So uh, that's going to be, the riots are going to fade from our national well, discussion. Well, but not everyone is in that media ecosystem. So, I mean, first of all, there is the flat out right wing media ecosystem that where coverage of the riots can get the vote out, maybe not persuade a bunch of new voters, but can get the vote out. Um, and, you know, then there's just social media where uh, it's a less controlled uh, universe. The the um, so I, I don't I don't I mean, I think it's going to depend on does uh, and I don't know how many of them qualify as flat out riots. But, you know, the problem is um any significant degree of disorder can be amplified uh, in in a given media ecosystem. Right. I mean, I right. did the- this. Uh, I did this. Uh, one, one reason I'm kind of frazzled is I just got uh, the newsletter out, which is available at nonzero.org. But I did this thing about, um, you know, kind of escalating civil conflict. I mean, in 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 a span of five days. Uh, we had, you know, the, the, the two, um, Trump supporters, uh, or, or Trump opponent shot by a Trump supporter and then a Trump supporter shot by a Trump opponent in Portland. Um, and I was emphasizing this dynamic where, because everything is on video these days, everything is captured on video. 
you know, what each tribe sees every day in their social media feeds is the most revolting thing done by anyone in the other tribe. And they, and they sometimes take that as typical. And right. so, so, you know, any significant degree, I mean, I mean, it's like the, these guys in, and this was another opportunity for Biden to do a sister soldier. Maybe, you know, you saw these videos of, uh, BLM protesters trying to intimidate, uh, sidewalk diners in DC into professing allegiance. You saw that, right? Right. So, right. I, um, that probably didn't happen a bunch, but it's really stuck in a lot of people's minds. And that's, um, that's what's escalating the, the fever on both sides. Right. That would have been a good one too. Um, yeah. that implies that they're not really quick on the, on the draw. They are the, not quick. They are not quick on the draw. The, um, in general, the, the, the mainstream media may be wildly, both wildly overstating its, its influence, as you say, and also chasing after anti-Trump things that, that really don't resonate with the public. Uh, Charlotte Alter, who I think is John Alter's daughter, just said, I talk, you know, I talked with, uh, I spent two days or a day talking with voters in, in Wisconsin, and they just don't give a shit about the violation of the Hatch Act. Okay. <laughs> and they also probably, they, they also may not give a shit about Jeffrey Goldberg's Atlantic article about the Trump being disrespectful of soldiers, which we sort of knew all along and also, uh, has the baggage of being an obvious attempt by the, what you call the blob to get back at Trump because right. they actually have policy disagreements with him. And what Trump uh, calls the deep state. That's why it kind of fits in his, the fact that Goldberg didn't get a single source on the record. And I think that raises questions about whether he should have even gone with the piece. But, really, um, I, but I like, I like off the record sources. Sometimes they tell you the truth. Yeah. But there are certain kinds of stories that you just got to get somebody's name attached to them. I mean, something somebody supposedly said, you know, it's different from claiming that there are, uh, documents, you know, that there's a, something is said in a Senate report. I mean, that will ultimately, you know, we will know. Whereas, I, I don't know, but I, I was going to ask you what you thought of that. Well, well, the, the first thing is he, he, right, right from the outset, he mixes up policy with disrespect. So he says, Trump was disrespectful because he asked, why did we even intervene in World War One with the Allies? Who was the good guy in that war? Well, that's a reasonable view of World War One, which is we should never get involved. It's not disrespectful of our, our military. It's just saying these people died for a stupid reason. Uh, I, I want, I sort of want a president who does that. Somebody who then says, you know, I don't want to see any crippled soldiers. But if he really said that in, in the parade because it's a downer, that's a different story. And if he insulted Kelly's son in front of his grave, that's a different story, but that's, that's, that story, even in Goldberg's piece is ambiguous. Uh, so, uh, it, 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 it basically confirmed what we knew, which is Trump is a boor. Uh, and, and he's not like one to volunteer for wars. And, uh, and, and, uh, also, but, but, you know, it, I, I don't understand the big fuss. It just off the record, it confirmed what, Others have confirmed three years ago. Yeah, I, I, and I think you're right. There's some questions to whether people care. I, I mean, you know, in, in 2016, Trump established the fact that people care less about this kind of thing than we thought when he when he dissed uh, John McCain and, and uh, lived to tell about it. This is a little different from that because it's not just dissing a single war hero 
Um, but but still, I, I think, and, and, and I totally grin the hat, the hatch act. I was like wondering, like, I mean, first of all, I was like wondering, well, was the hatch act really designed to keep the secretary of state from speaking at a convention? But also just like, I can't believe anybody who's not already indignant about this could be made to care about it. Why? They're also, their precedents FDR gave a couple of convention speeches from government facilities uh, including one from the White House, I think. So it's it's not like it's. I don't think I don't think that if that changes a single vote, I'll be really surprised. Also, the the idea that is is this their best stuff? If if Jeffrey Goldberg's article is their best last minute shot against Trump, they're in deep trouble. But it can't be. It can't be their best last minute shot against Trump. Well, it's not I mean, like they're voting. It's it's not like voting has started. So. Yeah, but I mean, it's not like. These people, you know, there's a there's a cabal that has meetings. I mean, Jeffrey Goldberg thought he had a good piece that could damage Trump, so he ran with it. It's not like there was a committee that decided to go with this. No, um, but sometimes the source the source can 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 time the release by saying, "I don't give you permission to use this until later." They 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 carefully timed the Bush DUI charge, for example. Yeah, uh, and they probably mistimed it. If they'd done it earlier, he would have been in more trouble. But uh, uh, you know, sometimes those, they they can be timed by by the source, even if there's no grand cabal, and sometimes the source is part of a grand cabal. I do I do think you the know? fact that all of these sources were anonymous in this piece, in a certain way, just feeds Trump's deep state narrative in a way that right. wouldn't be the case if they had one person to go on the record. Um, yeah. I mean, my experience from just my experience from welfare reform, where there was a big story that dropped. Right before the big decision, which is that, it's, that it was going to drive a million people into poverty, that was totally the product of a conspiracy. Everybody knew it was out there. They they tried one reporter for the New York Times. She didn't. She was she didn't get the story. Then they tried Elizabeth Shogren of the L.A. Times, and she got it out immediately. But it was totally exactly what you if there were a deep poverty state, it completely fit the stereotype. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I don't have. I, well, I did want to ask you about the dark shadows thing. Uh, you were about, about you were about to you were about to switch to another subject, and I interrupted you. Uh, it it probably subject? would have been dark shadows. Uh, do you uh, remember the show Dark Shadows? Was no. it You don't. No, I don't. It was a spectacularly successful in, in fifth grade. All the girls were watching it. It was a, it was a soap it was a vampire soap opera. The star was the star char- uh, character was I think Barnabas Collins or Barnaby Collins. I think the the girls had a crush on him. Anyway, you know you know the Trump comment I'm talking about, right? People in dark shadows are controlling Biden. Uh, and then there were playloads of people. Flying, I, I, I get those two comments confused. Well, well, they were the, in sequence, but it was a weird transition. So I think mm-hmm. Laura Ingram was interviewing him, and right. and he says the thing. He says people in dark shadows are controlling Joe Biden, and and she says uh, that sounds like a conspiracy theory. Um, and then he, and then I think then he segues to this thing about. Well, there was, no, I got a report that there was a, a plane, you know, that somebody was on. And there were all these people in dark, you know, uh, I guess dark, I guess the word dark maybe was used, but it, I, well, I didn't. 
It's possible there were some Antifa people on a plane wearing black. Well, right, I mean, but, but, and got, but what, uh, what does that have to do with, I mean, surely those aren't the people controlling Joe Biden, right? Right, right. I right. mean, I, but my question for you is, like, my first, I, I've been meaning to ask you for some weeks, like, do you think, like, if they come up with a, with a, the Trump administration, like, comes up with their campaign plan and it calls for discipline, and it calls for disciplined tweeting, could Trump exercise the discipline? And then when that, when he said that thing, at first I thought, this is proof that he can't. This is just Trump not realizing is, he, that he's already got the QAnon vote locked up. And and then the whole, and then there's a whole group of people out there who just, their eyebrows are raised by this kind of thing. But then I thought, you know, I thought that so often before about Trump and it's turned out he kind of in some sense knew what he was doing. Like, I mean, is this is there a master plan to really plant really to to turn Joe Biden into the center of a kind of conspiracy theory? That This is even on Tucker Carlson. You know, he I, I don't think he was joking. He said, you know, at some point they'll inform Joe Biden who his vice presidential pick is. Implying that there's a committee, at least, not necessarily a dark committee and not necessarily a committee that's not obvious people who we know, but it could be that, 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 that Biden just isn't in control. I don't buy it. I, I, I tend to think Biden will try to assert control. He thinks he's in control. He'll, he'll try to be the old Joe Biden. I just don't think he has the power to be the old Joe Biden the way he used to be. So, I mean, not, not the, not the mental power, the political power. I mean, he's just, He's wildly outnumbered in his own party. Nobody wants the old Joe Biden anymore in the Democratic Party. So uh, he'll try. I think he'll try to stand up against whatever left wing committee is trying to control him. But uh, uh, I don't know what the outcome will be. I doubt that Bruce Reed is advising him. I doubt that Bruce Reed is telling him to go way left, you know? Well, Biden shows no signs, I think, of going way left unless you're talking about like identity politics. If that's your idea of left and and kind of identifying with BLM, that's one thing. But but the true left, I, I think, seems to have no grip on Biden. No. And uh, one, uh, this is a, this may be a, 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 a tangent, but I went back and read an article by Marshall Auerbeck, who I think is one of our viewers, who who picked up on. Uh, something I tweeted, I retweeted somebody saying that, uh, uh, that uh, non-interventionism and no endless wars was victorious at the Republican convention. And he'd, he'd written a whole article in the Asia Times pointing out that while the Democrats have rejected neoliberalism, Clintonism, market oriented trade and immigration policies and, uh, you know, uh, keeping the market engine and redistributing its, its, its benefits a bit, They've rejected that in domestic policy. There's been no rejection of the neoliberal consensus in foreign policy. And in fact, Biden's going in the other direction. He's gotten more conservative on foreign policy. And uh, basically, he's to Trump's right uh, on foreign policy. And Well, uh, it's, a, it's so, a little more complicated than that. He would be more dovish with Iran. He wouldn't have gotten out of the deal. He would probably try to reconstitute the Iran deal. But in other respects, for example, Trump would like to get troops out of Syria and uh, Biden's, uh, you know, Tony Blinken, one of the, 
you know, I guess him, Jake Sullivan, maybe one other guy, Tom Donilon or something, are the main contenders for biggest foreign policy influence in a Biden administration. And and Blinken has said we should keep troops in Syria for leverage. I think maybe I mentioned that last week. I mean, Biden seems to have surrounded himself with people who are a little more hawkish than he is. Right. I guess the argument against it is that even in Iran, he would like market forces to do the job, not military forces. And that's well. If that's your idea of right wing, I, I don't, it's not mine. But well, the right uh, wing would be the ultra. The most the most right wing would be military forces, right? Yeah, but I mean, using yeah. diplomacy is well. It's less hawkish. He's less hawkish than than Trump. Um, but the, anyway, uh, sorry that was a that was a digression. Yeah. The. Um, so what do you what do you think? Are you concerned about the civil war problem? I've always thought that uh, that uh, and I thought the Washington Post did these computer simulations, but they basically confirm what I think, which is if Biden wins, the country won't be ripped apart. The you know, you know the, the the right will protest and they'll be pissed off and they'll try to retreat to their well armed ghettos, but uh, but there's not going to be. There's not going to be, you know, bids to uh, to rewrite the Constitution or for California to secede or riots in the streets. And people aren't going to abandon the whole idea of democracy or, you know, in, 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 in any large numbers. Whereas if Trump wins, you know, the whole thing's going to blow up. Uh, I, I, I could easily see, for example, uh, did I bring this up last time that you would that people would say, fuck the Electoral College install Trump, and it's an independent constitutive act. In other words, the Constitution is out the window. We now have a new Constitution. We're the same United States. Nothing has changed. It's just we have a new Constitution. The same way uh, overthrowing the elected leader of Ukraine was an independent constituent act that the blob has christened the Revolution of Dignity, okay? Well, we can have our own Revolution of Dignity where we throw the Constitution out the window and uh, or just modify it a little bit. Basically, it's the same uh, and have an independent constituent act where Biden is president. There will be people advocating it. Wait, what is an independent constituent? act? I mean, that has no in other words, force, does it? That's just something. What is that? Well, in other words, our Constitution was um, was designed to su- su- succeed the Articles of Confederation, right? Which were right. inadequate. OK, right. Our Constitution is not constitutional according to the Articles of Confederation. Right. It would not allow that. So our Constitution was an independent constitutive act. We are founding a new state. Fuck the Articles of Confederation. You know, we, we, we the, whatever rule of law they have is now obsolete. We are rebels. So you mean a bunch of a revolution. elites. Oh, so a bunch of elites from different states got together and did the Constitution, even though they themselves had not been duly elected and couldn't have been because there was no constitution and they weren't I, abiding by the Articles I, of Confederation. Right. I forget why it violated the Articles yeah, of Confederation. Yeah, I'm totally game for that. I'd like to Similar. I'd like to have a few coastal elites over to my house and just kind of hash this thing out. <laughs> um I don't well, I, I just don't see that happening. Um You don't see Cal you don't see California trying to secede or making noises. Well, secession I mean, is a different a- matter. There are there are uh presumably there are ways you could go about that. No, I don't see that either. It's an interesting question what happens if Trump wins. Um, the, uh, I mean, I had this both reassuring and horrifying thought. I think I was trying to reassure myself 
once I started freaking out about the possibility of Trump winning, I, I had this thought that like, well, maybe we need that. In other words, maybe the system is so screwed up that we have to heighten the contradictions um, and we need to descend into deeper uh, chaos, despair and alienation uh, before people will go, wait, the whole system needs to be rebuilt and rebuild it. But I, I in, in truth, I don't find that very reassuring because I don't I don't think we would do a good job of rebuilding. I mean, the system is totally screwed up. It's like neither, you know, the, the very machinery for nominating people has fallen apart in both parties, in effect. I mean, the Democrats came up with Joe Biden, you know, beating Trump. If if, if this were the days of the smoke filled rooms when party elites chose a nominee, Trump would be done. They would just pick somebody that, you know, you don't raise raises no major questions and he would beat Trump. But, you know, the nominating machinery is uh is screwed up in both parties and and, and the government is stymied and our foreign policy is a disaster and everybody hates each other. There's these two warring tribes. It's bad. But but it's I can't bad. convince myself that that reelecting Trump is the first step to to making it better. I guess. I I just I don't think making it worse is the first step to making it better either. But sometimes that is different. true in life. Sometimes that is true in life. Like if you have a drinking right, problem, understand. sometimes you need to to really it needs to get worse before you realize right. you need to quit drinking. My line is my line is different. My line is. Uh, on the basics of what Trump was doing as opposed to what he was saying, the economy before the pandemic was was getting slowly better. Maybe it should have gotten better faster, but it was the wages were rising at the bottom. The economy was still hot. Uh, manufacturing was slowly being uh, removed from China and and put elsewhere. And some of the elsewhere was the United States. Um, and on foreign policy, he's more dovish than the Democratic alternatives. So, uh, what's, what's the problem? He, he uh, really isn't in, in practice. He has really gotten us closer to war than a Democrat would have, even though I, I grant he has a non-interventionist instinct. He'd like to withdraw troops, but he's not competent enough to get that done. When did he, and meanwhile, when did he get it? he's rattling sabers, not just with Iran, but increasingly, um, with China. When did he actually get us closer to war? I don't think assassinating Soleimani got us super close, but it got us closer. Um, and uh, but it turns out to not have had that effect. No, but you got to remember. I mean, you know, the night is young in terms of what the his destroying uh, the the relationship. You know, the the nuclear deal with Iran will mean. Um, you know. The night is young. Right. But he's, 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 uh, he's just given or, or pledged a bunch of arms to UAE, uh, and, and that's an irresponsible government that can't be trusted with, uh, <laughs> with weapons. Um, and that's an, in, uh, you know, an enemy of Iran's. We'll see. Uh, anyway, but, but, but he, you know, he did screw up the pandemic, so he's not a, I agree he's not a confidence-inspiring leader. But in terms of contingency, I mean, you're right. The pandemic was one thing that came out of the blue to change things. But the other thing, I mean, in retrospect, I think if Trump wins, uh, it will be 
probably, speculatively, but probably accurate to say that the guy who killed George Floyd was the game changer. He got Trump elected. If that doesn't happen, if all these protests don't happen, um, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't yeah. see Trump That could be elected. true. In, in and terms of like the... People to reflect on that. Like, do you want to let the guy who killed George, George Floyd, who may well himself be a Trump supporter, uh, do you want to let him get away with that? I would ask. I, I, I'm compelled to say that you're, you're, uh, jumping over all the evidence that George Floyd had, uh, a serious uh, drug contamination of his body that was, might have killed him even if he didn't have a knee on his neck. I mean, he was complaining that he couldn't breathe before they even put him on Look, the Look, if the guy hadn't put his ground. knee on, on his neck, there wouldn't have been protests. So that guy was right, the decisive okay. intervention. But you said he killed, you said he killed him. And I think that's a, that's an open question. Uh, it seems likely, but um, my main point is, is, is if, uh, if he had, you know, not come to work that day, we'd be in a very different universe. Or if he'd, he, I, I, if he'd heeded Floyd's complaints. I mean, then yeah, like if, the yeah, 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 or, or the, yeah, the, yeah or one yeah, of the first yeah. 30 of Floyd's complaints, maybe, or, or yeah, the, um, what everybody around him was saying. Right, right. Now on, on this avoiding catastrophe after, after, after the election, I do think the Democrats, and maybe they've already flipped, they're about to exercise a huge flip on mail-in voting because, A, they're realizing that it's fraught with peril. It's one thing for Oregon to do it for 20 years and to keep on doing it safely. It's another to expand it rapidly into a bunch of states that aren't ready for it and to mail out ballots willy-nilly to everybody, even if they didn't want them, on the basis of obsolete registration rolls. But... uh you know, the, the, the sheer loss of votes with a mail-in system is, it, it's, it's 1% versus 0.001% for direct voting. So you're losing 1% of the vote, Wait, and that's a democratic lose, vote. How do you lose 1% of mail-in ballots? Well, because they're postmarked too late, people fill them out wrong, mainly it's the postmarking is too late. Uh, they forget to sign it, and they don't bother to correct it. Uh, I mean, that's there's a story in Politico by a Democrat saying you're insane. You're losing one percent of your vote. Your your voters are mail in voters. Trump's voters are going to the polls. So every you know, by shifting more to mail, you're losing a lot of Biden voters. The second thing is they're realizing everybody realizes now. But Bloomberg apparently put it forcefully. Uh, the initial votes are going to show Trump winning. And the Democrats are going to be, oh, no, no, wait for the mail. And the Trump supporters are going to be saying, we won, we won, uh, just like, tw- mm-hmm. just like 2000 when the Republicans thought they won and very hard to snatch it back from him then. And it's just a recipe for disaster. And in Michelle's speech, I think I noticed at the time at the convention, she said, go to the polls. Okay. Why'd she say that? I don't think she says things by accident. Uh, so, uh, and I applaud this move by the Democrats. It's a rational, recognition of an impending disaster for them in the country and they're trying to avoid it yeah i i was just listening to the uh, bannon podcast and i have two things to say one is that apparently oracle is no longer advertising with them so even larry ellison uh does not want to invest in an indicted trump supporter whereas he was perfectly willing to uh to invest in an unindicted one um, but, but more relevantly, um, they are 
as of now, this may change if the Democrats uh, shift their strategy, as you're suggesting, but they are now almost trying to prepare the ground for civil conflict after the election. I mean, they are trying to convince their followers that if 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 the Democrats don't abide by whatever the tally is on election night, that is part of a conspiracy to steal the election. Which is, of course, nuts, because if there's a lot of mail-in ballots, you, you know, it just may be the case that you can't call it on election night. But they are basically saying that anybody who says you can't call the, the election on election night, uh, you know, is, that's the enemy. And, and, and they're, you know, and they're using like, uh, enemy of the state, uh, type of terminology. Now, but enemy I mean, the state was, also used by Nancy Pelosi recently. Who'd she, who'd she say that about? I forget who she said it about, but it was a, I thought it was a big blunder. I forget. She didn't say enemy of the people. She said enemy of the state. I Wait, believe. which is worse? State? Because, uh, because then you uh, are inviting the, uh. I think state because it's more authoritarian, but maybe I'm wrong. The, um. um Anyway, yeah, uh, you're, I think I, I'm not going to I'm not going to contest that. I think you're basically right about what what is being done. So uh, I'd be, I, you know, it would be it would be very noble if if and heartening if Trump said we're going to have to wait till all the mail-in ballots are in. But uh, uh, I don't expect that. Could be a mess. But you know, when I when I mention civil war, I'm not. I mean, look, granted, I, I don't think there would be a classic civil war. It, it, first of all, the, the two tribes don't break down between two different regions of the country. They're more intermingled than that. But in terms of major civil conflict, I'm not just talking about after the election. I mean, we are seeing an escalation of confrontation between the two sides. I mean, the, the, this, the, you know, the, the exchange of killings, um, in, uh, you know, in Kenosha and then in Portland was uh, some, the kind of thing that hasn't happened in my lifetime. You're just seeing more of these kinds of confrontations. I just heard, again, admittedly on the Bannon podcast, but that, uh, you know, gun sales have set records for several months. In August, 650,000 uh, first-time gun buyers bought guns. Um, I just see, uh, you know, maybe I'm a little alarmist, but... Uh, Am I too alarmist? I think you're too alarmist because I think I I think it's going to die down. I think people have realized that having uh, armed volunteers to keep the peace and notice that in both cases, the person who did the shooting styled himself as an armed peacekeeper. There, except uh, you know the press is treating the 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 one in Kenosha who killed three two people. As, as being just unadulterated evil and the New York Times treats the, uh, the, uh, Portland killer, uh, uh, who's now dead, uh, mm. apparently having initiated a firefight with the people who were coming to arrest him. Uh, the, uh, the, the he was also self as a, as a conflict de-escalator. Okay. Which is insane. Well, he was armed. How yeah, much of a yeah, de-escalator he was he? Yeah, so he's, he's he is in the exact same position as Kyle in Kenosha, uh, and I think that those people are going to get uh, 
ashamed. Uh, I don't really think the New York Times, uh, I mean, they were quoting what, what his friends claimed about him, as you should, but he's, uh, pretty much everywhere I've looked, he's been depicted as a nut, which I think is not very far from the truth. Um, the Times, the Times didn't depict him as nearly as a, a big a nut as they could have, or as they should have. No, uh, no, they, they didn't mention, they mentioned he was an Antifa supporter, so they didn't completely whitewash him. Now, I, I just hope that people don't rally, people on the left don't rally around him, and I've seen some signs that they will, um, now, I assume these, he was killed by federal agents, right? So they probably didn't have body cams on. So we probably do not, there will probably not I, be proof that he, that he drew a gun. I, I, I don't quite understand that because the, the, the account said there was a mix of agents. There were some federal agents, some local agents. And Byron York confidently said he was killed by federal agents. So he may know, you all may know more than I do. There were definitely federal uh, agents involved. There I mean, were federal agents part were part of it, but who were the people who took him down? We I don't think we know. And I if mean, you spew forty shots into the general direction of the police, I assume they were all going to try to kill you. Is the claim that he actually shot at them and didn't just draw a gun? Yes, the there there are some eyewitnesses not reported in the mainstream media as much who claim that they saw him firing into the. Uh, now maybe he didn't initiate it. Maybe he was. Maybe they shot first, but yeah. he was definitely firing an automatic weapon or well, semi-automatic weapon. Professional um, snowboarders, which he claims to have been, are not risk-averse. Um, he was also into construction. Yeah, he um, was also into so, a lot of things. I, I, so, I, I, um, I saw a video of him, and and they uh, – that was from some time ago, weeks ago or something. Hmm. And he was kind of he, proudly brandishing a bullet wound. He, uh, he said he'd been shot in the arm. He was bandaged up, but there was a picture, the, the camera panned to his 11 year old daughter. And I just felt so sorry for her. I mean, she looked perfectly happy. She was eating something, but it's just like, you know, these kids get born into these circumstances. Yeah. I think, and of course he didn't really suffer any consequences for any of the illegal things he did. That's part of the problem in Portland. They they don't uh, they don't punish anybody and and then uh, you know they they could end you could end the demonstrations if you put everybody who violated the law in jail and then let them out for a few days. Now he was released after a gun charge without yeah. uh, the um they they dropped the charge. Uh, the um have we talked about the pandemic? We uh, should talk about the pandemic. It is still with us. Um, but. There was a very interesting article linked by Drudge. I don't. I don't find that many. Inter- uh, actually, I do find still a lot of interesting articles by, linked by, by the Drudge. By the way, Bannon has declared that, all out war on Drudge. Mentions yes. him like Drudge every three ve- minutes. Drudge is very anti-Trump. He still has pretty good taste in articles, and but this is the first time in a while I've seen what I thought was a game-changing article linked on Drudge, uh, and I was desperately trying to look it up again uh, before the. We started this podcast and I failed, but it was, it was scientists who'd, 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 uh, taken a su- supercomputer called Summit, which is the second fastest supercomputer in the world and had it work all the COVID stats for a week, which is a long time in the supercomputer business. And it came up with the theory that, uh, there was another chemical protein that involved is very important for the blood that was the key to this whole disease. And that, uh, and, and it, that opened up a whole range of blood drugs that are approved for use for other reasons 
that could, that might have a positive effect on this, uh, on this, uh, blood protein. And, and that, that before there's the famous, uh, the famous storm that kills so many people of an mm-hmm. allergic that- reaction, there's a storm of this protein. So the important thing is getting that under control. And, uh, I just thought it was, it was, it was new. It seemed important and it's completely vanished. It's also vanished from Drudge. Hmm. Um, which is bizarre. You know, there were all these, there were all these doctors who said, you know, maybe this is a blood disease. It seems to be wreaking havoc, uh, with the, the vascular system. And apparently yeah, that's what this thing does. Apparently that's what this thing does. So that was encouraging that there's, if there's a range of other available drugs that could be tried. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I hadn't read about that. The, uh, of course, the latest controversy is now, you know, the, what the FDA is telling states to be ready for a vaccine as early as like, you know, uh, a few days before the election or something. Yeah. And people think well, what we, that, pre- what you, pre- what you predicted, yeah. uh, would happen has happened. Already. Well, there will be some kind of October surprise, no matter how half-assed and it may be less than half-assed. I mean, the, uh, you know, we could learn, uh, responsible people are saying we could have important data from the phase three trials sometime in October. Um, you know, you would think, uh, that if they, you know, all these colleges where that, where they have returned to college and they're seeing the upsurge in cases supposedly, is that your sense of things? Yeah. Not a, yes. I, I don't know how huge an upsurge of cases and I don't know. If that's a good thing or a bad thing, you could say herd immunity, well, right? Well, that's just, that's like where they should choose their phase three participants. Cause then you'll find out sooner. I mean, that's, that's the funny thing about the ethics of this is that like, oh, well, I, I won't get on my little sermon about the, the virtues of challenge trials, but you know, you're not going to learn anything until, a, until the people in the trials have been exposed to the virus. You can't get a good result until that's happened. And yet anything they do to increase the chances of exposure to people with a virus is considered unethical. I mean, that just, I'm sorry. I don't think that makes sense. The um, Russian vaccine has been gotten a, uh, a clean bill of health from some inter- international organization. And you claim that they, you thought they obviously did do challenge trials. Uh, so that, that would, was my, that, would... th- that was my sense. And in fact, one anecdote that I didn't mention supporting that was came from our friend Nikita, who said he read somewhere, he lives in Russia, said, uh, read in the Russian press, there, there, there was, or, or knew of someone who didn't want to participate in their trials after he learned that you would have to stay in a, in this, in a particular institution for weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, that's not how you do normal phase three trials. If they're confining you to a building, it's probably a challenge trial where they are exposing you intentionally to the vaccine. Yes. Right. And you quoted him by name. So you're, you're doing better than Jeffrey Goldberg. In so many respects, I am a superior Uh, to to Jeffrey. I managed to break, let the record show. I did my part in the trashing of Jeffrey Goldberg. I brought up the aflatoxin thing again. I mean, it is true, as as my friend Ryan Jardusky says, you know, dissing the troops by not going to a graveyard is considered a grave sin. 
putting out a false story that causes a war that kills hundreds of thousands of people is is not a grave sin in the world of the mainstream media. So I thought that uh, Goldberg has has never sufficiently apologized. I don't think I don't think for getting anything intentionally wrong, but he got it wrong. You know, which thing are you talking about? I mean, he got a couple of aflatoxin, Saddam's chemical weapons. I didn't even think that was his biggest crime. I mean, I I think the piece that he ran, um, we talked about this a while ago, but where he claimed there was evidence of a link between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda, basically, right? And it, it I, really, I, I don't think it's. I didn't mind that speech, except the the constant never againing appeal to appeal to Jewish sentiment uh, was really annoying. That was in that piece. It, it, I think that was in that piece. If we are to believe that never again means you know blah blah blah. Oh, did he? There was a lot. Of, he did a lot. He did a lot of never againing. Yeah. Um. Uh, but if it wasn't in that piece, it was in another one. But I think he's a fine, he's a fine American, as you know. Um, so what else, uh, that seems like, you know, we've, uh, something must have happened in the world. Oh, um, let's see. There, um, was it, should we, uh, did you read the Ben Smith piece on Andrew Sullivan or is that Parrot? Oh room? yeah, did, that, did you read uh, or did you, uh, is that, is that Parrot Room Fair? Did you read it at all? I read it. We can talk about it now. Um, the, uh, uh, so we should tell people what it was, right? Uh, right. It said, it said basically it wasn't Andrew Sullivan's reaction against legitimate reaction against wokeism that really caused him to leave the New York magazine, but that old article on the bell curve, which he published in, he published Charles Murray and Richard Hernstein's The Bell Curve, an excerpt in the New Republic in 1994 was being used as a cudgel by the woke people against him. And it's sort of shocking that they dredged that up from so far in the past. And he, but he, you know, he didn't back off it. He still, he, he still said it was a, a good thing to have published. He doesn't necessarily agree with it, he says. Uh, and the question is, uh, since I was one of the people who probably thought he shouldn't have published it, uh, I should say I do, I do think that was an example of him being wrongheaded. And excitable and publicity seeking, but it's not, it's 20 years ago. It's not something that should destroy his career. It's not destroying his career, but it should get him kicked out of the, out of uh, New York magazine. And, uh, uh, I also forgive him for, I mean, maybe this is horrible of me. I forgive him for, for even if he thinks that there are race differences that are genetic, uh, that are way more than are acceptable. In polite society, he's British. That's sort of the British. Well, attitude. that's an interesting point. Didn't he actually say, Andrew, say something like that in the piece? Say, you know, maybe the fact that I'm British keeps me from totally understanding the role that race plays in American discourse or something. Because I, yeah, I had I that thought about him 25 years ago. I remember thinking that uh, I remember the moment when I was reading something he wrote and I thought because he did not grow up in America. He doesn't understand, right. you know, the original where the original sin right. fits into the way we think about ourselves. I mean, but I mean, um, if if I thought that Charles Murray Murray and Hernstein had made their case that there were genetic, you know, intelligence differences between races uh, that were innate, not just the product of the environment, uh, 
I would be very, it would be very troubling for me. Luckily, they didn't make the case. I thought they didn't, and and they sort of fudged when they didn't make the case. Yeah, they didn't so, claim they had definitively made the case. They said there's some suggestive evidence. Who knows? You know. But um, obviously, if they could have made the case, they would have made the case. It's not like they backed off for PC reasons. They backed yeah. off because they didn't have the goods. Now, maybe I mean, maybe other scientists have come up with the goods. I haven't seen it, but I can't say that I'm really looking for it. You know, if I if I if I really wanted to 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 find it, I, I mean, I, I don't really want to find it. It's, it's my line is the bell curves are close enough for me. I don't care who's ahead or which, you know, by five degrees one way or the other. Uh, it's doesn't seem wildly. It's not. It's not, I don't. I, it, it, I don't, it doesn't seem wildly fruitful to, to try to figure it out, especially when they're shifting. The one thing, the one implication that it clearly has is we shouldn't assume that races will all score equally on all measures of attainment. So the fact that there are fewer blacks or whites in well, a certain profession and the whole basis of our law is, is that phony assumption that we should assume that they should all be equal. The disparate well, if, impact if you analysis. even look at like, you know, the different, uh, you know, different economic, you know, if you look at the various dimensions along which different ethnic groups tend to differ, that, you know, that alone would make you expect not identical performance on various tests. The, I was surprised in the, um, uh, what struck me about the Smith piece was the explicit editorial, editorializing, the kind of explicit, uh, about Andrew, did you not? No, he's a columnist. Why can't he say what? No, he can. Uh, but but he's a media columnist, and it was it was uh, it wasn't about the media stuff. But I, but then but you know, I kind of thought, well, that's that's okay. If, I, and my line on Andrew, and I, uh, you know, I consider myself friendly to him. We've had our wild disagreements over the years. Is he's the straw that stirs the drink? He's you know he's excitable. He, 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 he's provocative. He goes crazy. Like when he was demanding that people take a stand in support of the Iraq war or, you know, don't, don't, don't equivocate. You got to go one way or the other, which I thought was sort of bullying. And then he apologized very gracefully. And, uh, you know, he has a way of worming himself out of jams, but I, we're better off having him on the scene than not have way better off having him on the scene than not having him on the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially. Where there's a, a chance of woke, you know, woke oppression because he's a strong voice against that. Yeah, you know where he apologized for supporting the Iraq War on Blogging Heads, I believe. Blogging Heads, and they put it on the homepage of the Huffington Post and drove a ton of traffic to us. Maybe you should uh, you could get Jeffrey Goldberg to come on Blogging Heads and 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 issue the apology that he's never issued to you personally and to the nation. Yeah, that'll probably for, happen. We're on good terms. I think. You sort of have blogging heads in the Atlantic. You're sort of equals. More or less. You know? L- 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 yeah. We've been approached by Lorene Powell Jobs, but <laughs> I'm I'm not selling out cheap. Is that true? <laughs> of course not. Are you kidding? <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? I mean, that's what's so absurd about Trump saying the Atlantic is in trouble. You know, does Lorene Powell Jobs care if they're in trouble? She has the money to pay for it, so... Yeah, um, I'm not worried about their their uh, well, financial future. There is the trouble that I mean, these you know, Larry Ellison has radically reoriented his philanthropy. That may be why he pulled the ads from 
from uh, from Bannon. I think it's now entirely directed at fighting COVID. So his whole bureaucracy of of philanthropy do-gooders, they're all out of a job. They're term- they're closing their offices. Uh, and Louis and Paul Jobs could, you know, all of a sudden say, hey, I, this Atlantic thing, it, I don't like it anymore. It's not doing me any good, uh, which would be deep trouble for a, a giant money-losing organization. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I so don't... Uh... She, she's not a strong read you can rely on. The, 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 you know, Patreon followers who are chipping in $5 a month, that's a strong foundation for the press. But I feel very secure. Tech tech moguls are very uncertain. Yeah, uh, always bet on the people. Um, was I too nice to Andrew? Do you think I was too nice to Andrew? I think I was. No, I think I that's think actually you were what appropriate, I think. Uh, appropriately nice, to Andrew. I'm, I'm feeling um, I'm I'm feeling very warmly toward Andrew, even though he's violently anti-Trump. I maybe yeah. Well, that that of course endears him to me. You know, I, I, I respect, I respect people who seem unconstrained by fear of what people think. I do. You know, Glenn Greenwald, same way. Cause I wish I had a little more of that in me. I wish but, I had, yeah, anyway. Now you seem less constrained, judging by how many things I'm, you've said that have led I, so many I'm, people I'm, to conclude that. I, well, I think, People concluded that I was uh, persona non grata long before I thought I was persona non grata, just on the basis that I uh, that I said pro Trump things, that I voted mm. for Trump, and and after that, it's everything I say is suspect. Uh, a classic Speaking example. Speaking of which, yeah. A classic example is uh, you know I wrote a book about meritocracy. You know, it, it basically uh, made the argument that meritocracy, even if it's fair is bad because it makes the people, the winners feel like they deserve to be winners. And that's toxic for social equality. I was not the first to make that argument. That argument is in, is in the very track that coined the word meritocracy by Michael, Michael Young. So it's nothing new, but, uh, but Michael Sandel of Harvard has an article, a book coming out and he had an op-ed in the New York times that made that point. And, there is zero chance, I think, that Sandel will cite my book. Uh, in part because, but go ahead. I mean, in part I because I'm not an academic. In part, in part because I'm not an academic, and the academics think if you're not an academic, they don't have to cite you. And in part because I'm a, I think because I'm, I, they think I'm a Trumper, and and it would it hurts them to cite me. It, it implies that they've read a Trumper or something. Uh so I can't tell which is the stronger bias. Ironic in a book decrying credentialist bias, but uh, uh, I think there is that credentialist bias. Want me to draw a masterful connection between Andrew Sullivan and your status as a pariah? Uh, I'm not sure, say, but go ahead. Say yes. So I was, I was listening. It's just a, a small anecdote and it, and it may not, it may not elevate your serotonin level, but uh, I, I, I'm available for counseling if it fails to. If I don't like it, I will start crumpling my paper very loudly and that, causing that's, sens- that's, sensory that's a, euphoria among our listeners that will drown out whatever you might say. That's our next business model anyway. 
Um, the, uh, so no, I was listening to this podcast that I guess Reason Magazine puts out called Fifth Column or something, you know, Matt Welch. Right. They had, then they had Andrew on, um, and that's why I was listening actually. I was curious. And one of the guys, I couldn't figure out if it was, there are two guys who sounded maybe a little, it wasn't Matt Welch. It was either Daniel Moynihan, is that his name? You know, the journalist who, uh, who outed that, uh, the journalist who lied about what Bob Dylan had said or something, Jonah Lehrer, is, is this? All, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it, yeah, is it Michael Moynihan? Michael, Michael Moynihan. Moynihan. Did I say yeah, Daniel? Okay. Of course it's not Daniel Moynihan. Yes, you did. What a fool. Anyway, it was either him or another guy who, your your name came to mind and he couldn't think of your name. I think it was the other guy. And, and he said to Andrew, trying to think of your name, he said, your friend, the psycho anti-immigration guy from Southern California. And Andrew said, oh, Mickey Kaus. Andrew Sullivan said that? Somebody Who said, said that? It. Somebody said it. Somebody, somebody well, Matt Welch. What's that? Matt Welch, Matt Welch I knew in L.A., so it's, it's of probably... Of course, but, the, I mean, but I'm just know. noting that there's a guy out there who's a podcast co-host who thinks of you as... You're, you're, you're in the part of his brain where he keeps psycho anti-immigration guys from Southern California. Now, Andrew went in, went on to, 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 uh, maybe brag is too uh, strong a word, but I think he was, with some pride recounted that when he was editor, he had made you and me alternating TRB columnists. That was his decision, right? That was, that started under I him. assume so. It happened yeah, under yeah. his watch, yeah. yeah. But, and, uh, we and, thought and, TRB was, we we thought TRB was a valuable uh, commodity, and it turned out that they canceled that eventually, and nobody cared. It, it was the flagship column at that point. It was a high, a very high status thing. But yeah, the new T, the new TNR has killed it. You know, you know who the the most prestigious, the most famous TRB, not the first, but the sort of the guy who branded it was Richard Strout, who wrote it anonymously. No one who knew. Who, no one knew who well, wrote I think it. People, I think people knew who wrote it. Insiders, but he took no public credit for it. There was no byline. He was wor- right. he was writing for think- the Christian Science Monitor. This was in like the fifties and sixties. Um, but it went it went back a lot further than that. The column. You, but anyway, he was an eminent liberal. He covered the civil rights movement eloquently. He was covered a bunch of campaigns. Uh, but you know what he also was? Christian scientist. Immig- no. No, an obsessive immigration controller. And ah. he was, he was, he, he basically is, his views on immigration would be on the far right of our current debate. And they were, he, he opposed, he opposed, uh, unchecked immigration for cultural as well as, uh, uh, economic reasons. He, he is basically where Ann Coulter is today. He and Ann Coulter would agree completely. On immigration, cultural and economic reasons for. And he wrote about that in the New Republic. Yeah, like every every twentieth column was an attack on excessive immigration. It was, uh, you know, his his line, as caricatured by somebody else, not by him, is, uh, and I'm not endorsing this, but you know, we have a nice Anglo-Saxon country here. Why are we screwing it up? (laughs) Yeah. So, Um, anyway, the uh, a liberal a liberal icon. Speaking of the New Republic, remember how we used to run the dueling headlines thing in uh, Notebook? It was, so it would just be two newspapers that had different ta- 
who 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 reported on the same thing and came away with extremely different takes on it. Yeah. Okay. So here's this week's example, but but there's something that's kind of changed about the context of these things. Um. U.S. Uh, U.S. Weekly Job. Uh, okay. Jobless claims fell in latest week. That's from the Wall Street Journal. Here's the New York Times. U.S. weekly jobless claims remain high. Now, I, in some sense, those could certainly both be true. And, 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 and we've always had those kinds of things. The difference now is that if I just gave you those two headlines, you could guess which one is the New York Times, right? Because it is the right. more blatantly anti-Trump. That is what's new about the right. environment we're in. Right. The, the, I was t- I was talking with somebody who's saying, you know, she used to love going uh, to MSNBC or or to the New York Times, to maybe the New York Times, to, uh, and I used to do this too, to look for the subtle signs of bias that you could bring out for the reader and show that it was really biased. Well, you can't do that anymore because the, the, the bias is not subtle. It's yeah. in your face. Yeah. Uh, so that's put a put a bunch of bloggers out of business, you know. Um, yeah, it's uh, whoops. Um, I th- I think we should wrap it up because uh, this is a special thing. I'm not in my usual place, and I'm doing it under constrained yeah, circumstances. It, it, it's uh, time is kind of tied at my end too. My dog Frazier is getting an ultrasound, and I'm going to have to pick him up before. Frazier is a paradroom star, Bob. Frazier is a he, star, star. He, um, uh, you should, uh, but yeah, no, the, it, it's, keep, it's true. I mean, I don't want to say fr- keep the Frazier gossip for the paradroom. Totally, totally. I don't want to make, the, and I do not want to make the Patreon thing sound like transactional, like it's all about getting into the paradroom because it is largely about supporting. Quality journalism, Mickey. But I'm just thinking it's, a, it's it's basically just a way to to support whatever it is we do. But exactly. But if you do go to Patreon.com/slash/ParrotRoom and help us get toward that magic 400 patrons mark, <laughs> you do get to go oh. into the Parrot Room and hear uh, just a whole different level. Of and we try weather. to be we try to be entertaining and actually give people some. We try to value be value for their five dollars. than heck. Say- in I'm not saying we succeed podcast. or that we'll succeed today, but um No, I mean the difference is, the thing about the parrot room is I am always inebriated. That's the big draw there. Okay. So wait, one okay. more thing though. Non patriot because it, it uh there's another nominee for who we remind people of. Uh Bob and Mickey are now this is from Selfish Wizard on Twitter. Bob and Mickey are now rivaling the great comedy team of your Bob and Ray shown here in their iconic author interview, which some say launched the entire radio book interview genre. I'm not sure what the last part means. I, I think that it's a bad week to read this. I don't I don't think we were all that like uh Well there is the famous funny this Bob week. and Ray there is I, I agree there but there is the famous Bob and Ray slow talkers of America routine <laughs> which which we were in inadvertently emulating this week. Uh he interviews the president of the slow talkers of America. See, that sounds <laughs> the, like the interview. This may be the same. This may be the same thing that he, that our reader is referring to. 
Uh, and, and, and eventually the interviewer sort of gets exasperated and starts filling in the spaces. Uh, and it's all in the timing. It's all in the, the comedy is all in the timing. Want to know, and, uh, want to know the most, one of the most shameful moments in my life? I met, sure. I met either Bob or Ray. And at that point in my life, I had never heard of Bob and Ray. That's pretty bad. It's bad. And he was so gracious. I mean, I was like a reporter for a local newspaper covering this opening of the Radio Hall of Fame. And it, it wasn't the Radio Hall of Fame, but it was a bid for Radio Hall of Fame. And, uh, he was so gracious about, I mean, I just think he looked at my age and kind of, yeah. Figured I might not have, well, but, but the way he wasn't offended or any, and I only yeah. later realized like this guy was, is an icon. Yeah. If you, but I think if you go back and re-listen to this, you'll discover that there's incredibly subtle humor, Bob and Ray style that is just, you just didn't discern the first time around. Well, see, I never heard it the first time. I mean, when did they fade? So, uh, well, like you, when did you know about them? You, you were like, Aware of them when they were on top, or or, or still barely on top. I, like I knew who they were, 60s? but I didn't. I didn't realize how funny they were until the slow talkers routine mm-hmm. was played to me by a famous comic icon. Bob icon is a com- is a is an overused word. I don't think I'm overusing it, and I'll reveal the name of this person in the paragraph. Okay. And which one of them is the father of Chris What's-His-Name, who used to be on David Letterman and is now on the Schitt's Creek uh, series? Elliot? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's Bob Elliot? I think so. I'm not sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's weird that the, the Larry Seifeld and his then-wife came out to L.A., and his wife had a show she was pushing with Chris Elliot, and he had this show, Seifeld, that sort of bombed initially and nobody really liked. Okay. And, uh, he went on to be the, it went on to be the most successful show ever. And her show was canceled, but her show was probably funnier. It had, you know, if I had a dollar for every injustice, it's been inflicted on a person. Well, she's, there's no injustice. She's Laurie David. She's mega rich. I met her. I sat next to her at dinner. Yeah. She she raised millions and millions of dollars and wasted it in the John Kerry election. So I have no sympathy for her. Okay. I don't think she's a bad person, but she did do that. I'm glad you clarified that, but you may elaborate in the parrot room. Who knows? I'd certainly hate to miss that. <laughs> okay. Um, so we'll, we will see you in the parrot room and uh, presumably next week. Uh, and I think, can I just say in closing, there are podcasters who take off Labor Day weekend. We are not those kinds of podcasters. We're here. We're here for you. You can't charge people $5 a month and then take off one week a month. Well, but this part is free and we're here for that. We could yeah, have just done the parrot. Good point. You know? Good point. Thank you. Good point. Okay. Okay. So we'll, uh, see ya. we'll see. You.